Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just the show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze, and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. We often think that a guilty plea ends a criminal case, but it doesn't always do so. Many defendants who plead guilty nevertheless try to appeal their convictions on various different grounds. The Supreme Court today heard a case about whether someone who challenges the legal charges against him as unconstitutional, but then pleads guilty, can nevertheless appeal his conviction on constitutional grounds afterwards. Here to talk with us about the case are Rory Little, a professor at the University of California Hastings College of the Law, and Albert Altshuler, professor of law at Northwestern University. Rory, this is, as Supreme Court arguments always are, this is about a case that will have broad application across uh, criminal cases. But the facts of this case and the defendant himself are a little bit atypical of what one usually thinks of in criminal cases. Why don't you start by telling us about what the facts are that got this case before the court? Well, Mr. Class, uh, you know, was arrested and charged a long time ago, but his timing in some sense couldn't be worse coming right after the Las Vegas uh, shooting uh, massacre. Uh, Class parked a, a car full of guns on Capitol grounds near the U.S. Capitol. Uh, his guns were legally owned, uh, but he was in a parking lot uh, on the federal property where he wasn't permitted to park. And there's a special federal statute that says you can't have readily accessible weapons anywhere on Capitol grounds. Uh, he didn't know that. And uh, when he got back to his car, they were surrounding it and they found the guns and, and uh, he was arrested. He ultimately pled guilty to the charge, but he wanted to challenge this statute on Second Amendment grounds. You know, the Second Amendment, he says, should allow uh, people to possess lawfully owned weapons, even if they're near the Capitol. Um, when he pled guilty, it wasn't clear, actually, in the dialogue between him and the judge, whether he could appeal this or not. Neither side really got into that issue at all. So then he filed an appeal, and on appeal, the court said, you can't take that appeal because you pled guilty. So the Supreme Court today was asking, when it's not perfectly clear that something is foreclosed, does a guilty plea sort of by default foreclose the appeal? That's the issue in front of them today. Al, before we get to what actually happened today in court, what what is it that, you know, how has the court treated this kind of issue in the past? Well, um, most of your uh, federal constitutional claims are waived by a guilty plea. I mean, you can't argue after a guilty plea that the, co the confession was coerced from you or your uh, material was illegally seized. But the court some years ago held that there were at least two exceptions to that rule. You can still assert a claim of double jeopardy, and you can still assert a claim that you're a victim of discriminatory or vindictive uh, prosecution. And the question today was, well, does that same principle extend to challenging the statute uh, to which you pleaded guilty. 
Rory, you were talking a bit about waivers of, uh, you know, waivers of your rights as you as you plead guilty. Can you waive everything when when you plead guilty? And if so, how clear does it usually have to be? Yeah, well, absolutely, you can waive everything. Um, and had the government simply asked for a clear waiver, you know, your appeal will waive your right to raise the Second Amendment issue, then I think there wouldn't be a case here. Uh, so the real question is, what's the default rule when nobody makes it clear? Is the default rule that you can raise it, or is the default rule that you can't? And, and this case may have very broad application to lots of cases, or it may turn out to be very limited to just federal please. And the federal criminal load is only about, you know, three to five percent of the uh, criminal cases in the country. Most cases are on the state side. So part of it will be to see whether the justices sort of extend this to a constitutional issue of voluntariness or just a federal rules issue of what can you do under the rules. So, Al, what is so how exactly is, a- is class framing this this case? How, how is he arguing it? Well, he's, he is arguing that uh, that this MENA blackledge doctrine that says you can appeal uh, on grounds like double jeopardy, that that doctrine extends to uh, to his case. And there, there's a lot of technical uh, dispute about just how far that doctrine uh, uh, goes. Uh, but, you know, keep in mind that if you if you've pleaded guilty to something that isn't a crime, certainly there ought to be some kind of some kind of remedy. He ought, there ought to be some way to, to get you out of prison. If, if it's if you know, it's not just the it's not just the defendant's interest. It's all of our interest in seeing that that people aren't uh, uh, punished when they're not guilty of crime and getting rid of statutes that keep other people from exercising their constitutional rights. Rory, you know, one of the inter- go, go ahead. Well, one of, one of the interesting exchanges uh, at the court today was about the case of Loving against Virginia. Uh, that's the case that where the court held that uh, people of different races have a constitutional right to marry. But the defendants in those in, those, in that case had uh, pleaded guilty. They'd mattered a bargain, and they were banished from Virginia uh, forever. And uh, that the Supreme Court decided that case without, without blinking. Uh, that the Commonwealth of Virginia didn't even argue that they would be barred from challenging the constitutionality of the statute because they pleaded guilty. Uh, Rory, do you think if that's the way they're thinking about it, that this is going to have a broader application? We have about 30 seconds. Well, I think it will have a broad application. Um, You know, the other interest is finality. Uh, Anybody could challenge this statute. And in fact, the district court judge said there was no Second Amendment problem here at all. Uh, So if we want finality, we've got to give guilty pleas sort of a final meaning. Uh, it'll just depend on whether they think it was clear here or not. I don't think it was clear. We are talking with Al Altschuler, a professor of law at Northwestern University, and Rory Little, a professor at uh, Hastings College of the Law, about a Supreme Court case that was heard today. Uh, the court heard argument on a case involving a man who was arrested for having uh, guns in his car when he on, on the close to the United States Capitol, which under federal law you're not allowed to do. Uh, he claimed it's an unconstitutional under the Second Amendment, and but then pled guilty when he lost that argument. He now wants to be able to challenge the constitutionality of the law on appeal despite his guilty plea. Al, you were in court today. Um, what, how did the justices react to the arguments? Well, it was a very technical argument, on, and the counsel on both sides were asked, uh, very tough questions. I think the, 
the most surprising moment was Justice Gorsuch um, being very hard on the government's lawyer uh, and and arguing that there was a historic uh, understanding that a guilty plea did not preclude uh, uh, arguing on appeal that the statute was unconstitutional. I decided uh, a lot of you know cases going back to the early 19th uh, uh, century on that on that subject. So that. That was a that was a bit of a surprise. Um, I thought uh, most of the, most of the judges. Well, I, you know, I think the 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 so-called liberals on the court, the uh, the ones appointed by Democrats, uh, mostly uh, favored the uh, defendant's argument that he could appeal. You had the sense that the that most of the most of the so-called conservatives were leaning the the other way, although it wasn't entirely clear. Rory, this uh, this happens sometimes with criminal cases before the court. It doesn't always quite break down in the, the the normal roster of judges on the left and the right, does it? No, well, it doesn't. Although, you know, let's talk. Let's be clear about the politics here. The Second Amendment argument is one that conservatives have embraced. You know, if this were uh, another constitutional right, it might not be so uh, likely that Gorsuch would suddenly find. Uh, that the defendant's position is sympathetic. J- Justice Gorsuch is not a sympathetic guy to criminal defendants generally, but the Second Amendment gun thing uh, kind of overwhelms maybe their their other political instincts. And I think we have to be realistic about that. It, it, this this is the right argument for the conservative court that we have. The the other point that's important here, and to telescope out a little bit, this is the sixth case they have heard argument in this week. It's the last of six. All of the cases they heard this week are really big, important cases having to do with immigration and labor law and redistricting of of gerrymandering. Uh, You know, there's a little bit of fatigue on a case like this. It's not uh, not the most earth-shattering case on the docket. Uh, And so it tends to sort of, I think, the justices get a little technical because they're a little bit tired, actually. Well, Al, um, putting aside their fatigue for the moment, do you do you think that the Second Amendment angle on this shaped the way that the court approached the arguments today? Well, certainly not explicitly. I mean, that was barely mentioned. I, it, you know, it was mentioned by the counsel simply in describing the, the facts of the case. It was not mentioned by any of the justices, if I remember uh, correctly. So I don't I don't think it was a, a major theme, although I suppose it does color might color your view of the case. It's not, I don't think the, the defendant, in fact, has a terribly attractive uh, Second Amendment uh, argument that would appeal to even most of the conservative justices. Uh, his, his due process argument is a little stronger. He, just, he says there was no notice that, he wasn't, that, that this was a uh, place he wasn't supposed to park and no notice that he wasn't supposed to have guns. So, so he says he didn't get fair notice. Well, Rory, uh, do you think that... Um there's some argument here. Is there an argument here that it it's not really a voluntary plea if it's not entirely clear whether he waived his constitutional argument for appeal? Well, yeah, Michael, that's exactly right. I mean, it's kind of a fallback argument for, for Mr. Class. His argument is, look, even if a guilty plea would normally waive uh, issues like this, my guilty plea in particular was unclear. The judge was a little bit equivocal uh, a little bit unclear about what was being waived and what wasn't. Um, that's probably an issue that the court would not decide, but would rather remand the case back to the lower court to say, well, now that we've decided the default rule, you get to decide whether this guy's plea in particular is clear or not. 
voluntariness, though, is a very important thing. So it seems to me it's entirely possible they'll say, hey, it's an important constitutional right that's at issue here. And when you're waiving an appeal about that sort of thing, you know, loving in Virginia, uh, let's make sure it's clear. Let's make double sure it's clear. Uh, that may be their rule. Uh, you know, in loving, it was certainly clear, I think, to everybody that the issue was going to be taken up on appeal. Uh, here, I think it wasn't clear at all. I think the government thought this was the end of it, and, and they really feel cheated in some sense that this guy pled guilty uh, after after fleeing, and they had to rearrest him and get him to plead guilty, uh, that he's still trying to do this on appeal. I think the government feels like this is really not the right case for that. Alan, about 15 seconds. Do you have any sense from the court today which side's going to prevail? I don't really. I mean, I think that, they, they, as I say, they ask very hard questions of of, of both sides, uh, and I don't think I don't think it's a slam dunk. I I, I suspect the court's going to be divided. All right. Well, our thanks to Al Altschiller, a professor of law at Northwestern University, and Rory Little, a professor at Hastings College of Law, for being here on Bloomberg Law today. Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just the show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. Elon, Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.